welcome to the Leading Through the Enneagram podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Prince. Together, we will explore how the Enneagram typology system applies to leadership. We interview leaders that share their Enneagram journey and how it's impacted the way they lead in their organizations, in their communities, and in their personal lives. I am so excited for my guest on the podcast with Not Just Any A Coach. Her name is Elizabeth Worm, and she has led trainings, taught workshops, and facilitated discussions in corporate, nonprofit, and educational settings. Her experience in theater and improv and arts management led her to complete her master's thesis on the Enneagram as a tool for leadership in the arts. She currently studies the Enneagram with other professionals in a cohort led by Suzanne Stabile, who is the author of The Road Back to You and also The Enneagram Journey. You are going to love her as much as I did. I can't wait for you to listen. I love about LinkedIn is the way we can connect shared interests. And I love to, to jam on the gram. That's what I call it. So I love to talk to people about this and learn from them as well. So I'm excited for our listeners to get to hear your Enneagram story and how you're using it today and how you've used it to grow yourself and even in um, leadership and in business. So if yeah. you just want to start off by saying which core type you identify with and um, talk about your Enneagram story. And, and the other thing I've been asking a lot of listeners is their first reaction to it. So I was mm-hmm. a skeptic at first and mm-hmm. a lot of my listeners are, which is, which is interesting, or they started that way. So just curious about that, if you were ever a skeptic or if you were all in to start off with. Yeah. So I discovered the Enneagram. My first interaction with it was probably 2010, The Gift of Being Yourself, that book. He goes into, he has a chapter about the Enneagram. I read all the types and I remember specifically having a conversation. This was back in college with a friend and I wanted to be a type three but I was afraid that I was a type two and the type two sounded like just a little needy and a little clingy. And I didn't want to be that. And so I had a conversation with my friend, Josh, and he was a really good listener. And he, I don't remember exactly what he said. I wish I could, but he said something that seemed to see the best in me, even though, and he knew me pretty well. So I think I was kind of comforted knowing that it would be okay, even if I was a two. <laughs> so I didn't really come back to it until probably three or four, probably four years ago, I was reading Jerry Scazzaro's The Emotionally Healthy Woman. Again, she has a chapter on the Enneagram. And so I was reading that and I became obsessed with Myers-Briggs in 2010 as well. I'd gone through a breakup with a boyfriend and realized that we had a lot of incompatibilities and I didn't know what introverted or extroverted was, you know, and realizing that he was an extreme introvert and a hardcore thinker. And I'm an extreme extrovert, a hardcore feeler. And it didn't mean that either of us was doing life wrong. It just meant we were different and we weren't able to, to find a way to, to make that work. It got me excited to learn about how people are different. It doesn't mean they're wrong. They're just different. They see life in a different way. So when I came across the Enneagram, I was excited for another way to see how people see the world differently than I do. I was raised by a one. And so, and I grew up in a pretty fundamentalist Christian environment um, in school. And so had a very 
I struggle a lot with dualistic thinking. I'm not a one, but I struggle a lot with dualistic thinking. And I'm a two. I am a two. Josh is right about me. (laughs) I'm a two and I want to please and I want to be wanted. And so I think growing up in an environment that was very one heavy that I adopted a lot of one tendencies to please and to be accepted and to be wanted. So Anyway, for a while, I still hoped that I was a three again because I have a really big three wing. Turns out um, I I am a big accomplisher. I do a lot. People are always amazed at like how many things I do and how many things I'm doing and how many plates I'm juggling and commitments I have. And sometimes I'm like overwhelmed by that. But if you look at my strengths and weaknesses... I have strengths of the two and the three, but I have the weaknesses of a two. And that's, so Suzanne Stabile says, we know ourselves by what we get wrong. Yeah. And that always kind of hits home where you're like, oh yeah, like I can learn all the positive qualities from, I can learn any positive qualities from any of the Enneagram numbers, but I am less likely to learn the negative habitual patterns of the other numbers. Whereas the two habitual patterns are like breathing. I don't even have to try. That's just the negative cyclical habitual predictable part of me. So that's, so I I realized I was a two. I started listening to some podcasts. I bought Richard Rohr's book. That was my first Enneagram book was Richard Rohr's book on the Enneagram. Just to find myself, found a few of my friends in there, just reading and realizing like one of my best friends is a nine. And I had had some frustrations with, why doesn't he ever initiate hanging out with me? You know? And I read in Richard Rohr's book, this little blip, it just, it just delighted me. He said about nines, he said, you could send a nine, a letter in the mail and they would receive the letter and be pleased as punch that you thought about them. And then they would let that letter sit on the table and they would probably forget to respond to it. And it doesn't mean that they didn't like the letter. It doesn't mean that they aren't friends with you, but they just don't realize it doesn't even occur to them that they could respond to you. That maybe that's something that you would want. Yes, girl. This is, this is me. So you're you're telling my story. But I will tell you that I've learned over time, like I have a lot of two friends that will send me things like that. Uh-huh. And I've just learned that that's really what they need is for me to say, oh my gosh, thank you for thinking of me. Just a quick text, you know? Right. So it's like, yeah, but, but I, I hear you there. It's not that it's not appreciated. It's just, yeah, it's not top of mind for me to do for sure. Right. That's not natural to me, but that's something I've grown through. Right. And for me as a two, realizing that that doesn't mean that my nine friend doesn't care. Yes. It it doesn't mean that. It's just, he sees the world in a completely different way than I do. And so I was sucked in by that point. Like, I think that sentence really sucked me in about being pleased as punch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That I was like, I have to learn more about how other people see the world because I've been over here building up resentment towards all my friends who aren't being the type of friends that I want them to be, which is I want them all to be two friends, but they're not. And it's actually a good thing that they're not because if we were all twos, we'd all be smothering each other to death and (laughs) not thinking about anything clearly. (laughs) Well, and that's one of the things I love about the Enneagram is that it does bring you from judgment of others Mm. to really valuing the way that we show up in the world. Yeah. And I say all the time, like my dream team in a leadership role would be to have one of each type all in good health, like all in good emotional health. Right. 
You have to be healthy. That would be a a dream team for me, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and and we would all look very different and, and that's great. Like, I think it's a, you know, we talk about diversity in a lot of different ways. I think personality diversity is a thing. Yeah. And it's something we need to be aware of. Yeah, diversity of thought is is a big component of the place that I work at right now. We talk about diversity, you know, race, ethnic, gender, age, disability, sexuality, orientation, things like that. But diversity of thought is really important. I do try to kind of talk about the Enneagram and non-Enneagram terms <laughs> when we're talking about diversity of thought. I will say the thing that got me really going on the Enneagram, and this is the most two thing that that I could have done. But I had a boss. I got a new job, had a a boss. And I've been in sales. I was in sales for a long time. And I had worked in a very salesy culture. Looking back, there are probably a lot of threes, probably some twos, maybe some ones. And as a two, I know how to make people like me. I like to think, put <laughs> the asterisk there. I like to think that I know how to make people like me, right? That's a little bit of that pride coming out, a little bit of that ego coming out, you know? And so I had this new boss and she wasn't liking me. And I was like, my charm is not working. My helpfulness was not working. Going above and beyond was not working. Like trying to sense what she needed. I wasn't doing that well. And we were having all of these conflict conversations. And I really felt like one of my other coworkers felt the same way because she was new on the team as well. And we were talking about it and we're like, we just don't feel like she trusts us. And so I, I got out Richard Rohr's book again and was determined to find my boss in the pages because I was like, I have to figure out what makes her tick so that she can like me so that I can function in this, in this job. And so I found her. She was a six. (laughs) I mean, I was just like, I was just like reading off the pages. I was like, oh my gosh, this is her. In true to fashion, tried to find out what sixes want, which is security and support and tried to give that to her. Well, it didn't work. And I even at one point said, you know, because she wanted feedback a lot of the time, but I felt like I couldn't ever give her honest feedback. And one time I did say, you know, I just, I don't know if you trust me. And she was like, of course I trust you. What do you mean? Like, absolutely. I believe you can do your job. And we didn't get to have like a deeper conversation about it. She just kind of brushed it off. And that's when I realized like, it truly is an unconscious desire that we all have in the Enneagram. And unless you're somebody who's really digging deep and doing self-reflective work and really observing yourself non-judgmentally, like Susie would say, you don't even realize that you have this deep unconscious fear and desire and calling it out, like literally blatantly calling it out. She didn't even relate to it. But what's funny is the other people on my team felt the same way that I did. And so, and that we could name it without even knowing the Enneagram, that trust, it really took her a long time to give trust to people. She has like a really long vetted process. And, you know, that's something that actually makes her good at her job. She has a lot of risk management in her job. You know, she can see all the things that need contingency plans. And, and in our, in our work that we were doing together, we needed those contingency plans. We did have some things that happened, worst case scenario, you know what, she was prepared for it. You know, and I started to appreciate some of the things that, you know, she brought to the table as a six, but well, the most important lesson that I learned was instead of trying to use the Enneagram to make her like me, 
I found out the Enneagram was actually the most helpful if I just forgot about her all entirely, trying to fix her, trying to support her or whatever, and just focused on being my best, healthiest version of myself. Yeah. And so I realized the hardest lesson I had to learn was sometimes as a two, I can't make people like me. I cannot give everyone what they want at all times. Yeah. Sometimes, especially, so I have Crohn's disease. And one of the hard things in that job was I was getting sick a lot due to the travel components of my job. And I could not deliver on all of the jobs that I needed to do because I was so sick. And so she was nervous you know, as she should be, you know, is Elizabeth going to be able to deliver? And I wanted to assure her that I could, but I couldn't because I can't control my body. And so being, I had this revelation in the parking lot one day, like I cannot give her what she wants. I can't give it to her. And I had never had that revelation before. I had never realized my my (laughs) non-invincibility. I had never realized how human I was I guess I always thought, and that's the pride, that's the vice of the two, you know, thinking that you can be everything to everyone at all times. And I realized I can't. And that was really humbling and really sad, but also kind of freeing to realize, you know what, like, I don't have to have everyone like me. I don't like if we're in a positive working relationship, which by that time we had figured out how to work together. We were not best friends, but I had to kind of let that dream go of us being best friends. And we're just going to have a positive working relationship. And I'm going to be open to her questions, realizing she's not interrogating me, but she is looking for the holes that I probably am not going to see because I'm thinking repressed. And I am sensing all the feelings in the room and she's not sensing any of the feelings in the room. You know, So realizing yeah. you see the, the world in different lenses. So I think that was definitely one of the harder working relationships I've experienced, but the Enneagram really, really helped me walk through that relationship. And we're, we're, I'm in a different position now, a, a different role and department. And, and so we don't, we don't work together anymore. But I think by the end of our working relationship, you know, we left on good terms and yeah. I was really thankful for the Enneagram to help me navigate that because there were things that my boss saw in myself that I needed to work on. And for some reason, I couldn't hear it from her. But when the Enneagram was like, here are the things you need to work on. I was like, oh, that's what she's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I think when other people are sort of being critical or we're perceiving it as being critical, it's like, wait a minute, you know, our our defenses go up. And when you have a chance to really see it on paper and have it articulated for you and really sit with it and, and evaluate yourself and do some reflection, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that is me. But at least I don't have to tell anybody right now. Like now yeah. it's still my secret, even though everybody else probably already knows. <laughs> right. But it still feels like it's a secret and I can continue to, you know, work on that and grow. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that you had that experience with with that particular boss because I imagine in the future that's gonna serve you really well, probably already has mm-hmm. to depersonalize other people's behaviors towards us and not have to be liked all the time. That's a right. it's a very common thing for women, especially in leadership and in business is that that's sort of the the bad rap we get is, you know, well, you know, they just want to be liked. And a lot of women 
do. You know, I mean, that's how that that was the childhood message they got as women that that is mm-hmm. important to mm-hmm. to be liked by other people. So I think that's that's a great way to use the enneagram. And to your point, she didn't have to be doing any of the work herself. You could do all this on your own. So if you're in a organization or in a position where nobody else is interested in the Enneagram, that's okay. Right. You can still take it and make it a very powerful tool for yourself. Right. And in a lot of ways, I think by just natural osmosis, other people start to pick up some of the things you're doing and, and the things that you're bringing to the table. So I want to touch on... You talked about your, or you before we started here, you talked about writing your thesis on the Enneagram. So tell us about that and writing a, an entire thesis on the Enneagram. I mean, what a great way to learn this thing. And then um, talk about the interviews that you've done with people. Yeah. So, so I, uh, my background's in theater. I went to IU Bloomington for theater in my undergrad, and then I went to Fompon in St. Louis for my master's in theater. And initially, I was thinking I was going to get my master's in theater so that I could refine my directing skills. I started a theater company here in St. Louis and ran that for six years on the side. Like I said, I have a big three wing. <laughs> so always working full time, running a theater company, and also, you know, going to grad school part time. You know, it's like, you know, not just a, deal, a little apparently. bit going on. It's just yeah. like a little bit, you know. Yeah. And and I also didn't I was like, why why is my body rejecting me? Like why is my autoimmune disease hating me right now? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that's another personal journey of how Crohn's, how Crohn's and the Enneagram have really clashed and come together to help me be a more holistic, healthier person too. But that's a different conversation. Anyway, so I went to school for theater to do directing. What I found is I became really interested because I was doing all this personal work in the Enneagram kind of concurrently at the same time. I found that as I was directing, I really enjoyed the character development process with my actors. And I had one actor during a dress rehearsal. He had started developing a stutter during dress rehearsal and he had never had a stutter before. And he was just like really in his head. And I, I realized so we were doing a, a show. It was it was a parody musical of a boy band, '90s boy band, and so I had five amazing actors, and they were all very different. And I started noticing in our warm ups every night that the different warm ups would either like challenge people or stress people or like make them feel like ready to go. Some of but some of the same exercises would make somebody else feel really stressed and in their head. And so I was trying to be sensitive to, wow, actually, you know, they probably have all different Enneagram personalities. They don't know exactly what they are yet, but, you know, how can I, as a director, help create self-confidence for them, create an environment where they can warm up? Because that's the purpose of a warm up is to get them ready to go and perform. And I wanted to create a space where they all felt confident to go be their best selves and deliver their best character. And so for my one actor, he was not feeling confident and really in his head. And so I talked to him a little bit and he gave me some information. He said that he was afraid that in this, there was a certain long speech he had to give. And he was afraid that in doing so, the audience would see him his weaknesses and not the character. Like he, he felt really vulnerable oh, in that yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, that maybe the audience would confuse and, and, and think that all of that meant that he, the actor was saying these things. 
And so I said, you know what? That's a great point. Let's try to separate the actor from the character. And so I sent him the Enneagraminstitute.com website. And I said, (laughs) read through these personality types. And I want you to tell me which type your character is and which type you are. And then I want you to tell me the weaknesses of your character versus the weaknesses of yourself and the strengths of your character versus the strengths of yourself. Because for him, it was important to see the character as different from himself because he was relating so hard to the character. It was like, where does he begin and end versus where does the character begin and end? Yeah. And so we needed to define that for him. So he he took the assignment and ran with it and texted me the next day and was like, I definitely feel like this character is, I don't even know what type it was, but it was different from his personal type. Just from reading that, you know, just as a one-time exercise. And so he was able to then come up with, based off the Enneagram personalities, here are his weaknesses versus here are my weaknesses. And I feel more confident going on stage and having a clear objective of I am okay to show these vulnerabilities of the character on stage because that's what I do as an actor is I share the story of the character. And that doesn't mean that I'm weak. It means that I'm sharing the vulnerabilities of the character. And so that was a really... That was my first ever like blatant Enneagram exercise with an actor. And he ended up performing really well, didn't have a stutter during the performances. Like people were like, wow, what happened to him? Like he's doing such a great job. So that got me interested in, I wonder if I could find out my, if I could educate actors in their Enneagram type, how could that help me as a director learn how to build their confidence and create a safe space for each of them in rehearsal period? But also, how could it help them with their character development and learning, you know, in, in acting, we talk about the character's overarching objective. What's their goal for the whole script, for the whole musical? What's their goal of the play? And with the Enneagram, we have nine great desires that we can choose from. Yeah. You know, is it to be wanted? Is it to be successful? Is it to be understood? Like, is it to be protected? Like, there's so many great objectives that we can play with. And so as an actor, you take the overarching objective and then you break it down into tactics, into this scene. My overarching objective is to be successful. And that means in this scene, I'm going to try to convince this person to buy my car. And that means I'll be successful, you know? And so it gives them this direction. It propels the character forward. It gives them something to focus on. So not in their own head, they're putting it out there. And it's really amazing to see when actors are really working with a clear goal in mind for their character, it really flushes it out. So I started a process where I start, I decided my thesis was going to be using the Enneagram as a tool for leadership in the arts, because I'm very passionate about directors and producers and stage managers creating a safe space where art can take place. And you cannot, like Brene Brown talks about vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, or emotional exposure. And that is the definition of, of a rehearsal. Like, We as directors, we need to create a space where actors can take risks. They can emotionally expose themselves where they're not sure what's going to happen in in the space. And we need to create a safe space for people to experiment because otherwise, like audiences don't want to see something that seems very rote and routine. They want to see something alive. They want to discover what the character is discovering in the moment. And that takes risk and spontaneity, you know? Yes. Can I just just point out too that that is relevant in any business, right? 
So when we can create that space for people, that's when we have innovation. That's when our creative brains start to work, when people feel safe. So that is part of why I started this podcast was was bringing that into business and humanizing business, right? And so some businesses are nailing this right now. Others still have a long way to go. And I'm hopeful that we get there. I get asked that question all the time. How, How can I get my people to be more innovative? I want them to think outside of the box. Okay, we'll create the safe space first. What you have just described is the definition of leadership. No matter where it is, if you're leading community, if you're leading a family, mm-hmm. it's a definition of leadership. And so we have to create that space. So, right. so I love I love the way that you're using it and how how important it is to the arts. I mean, I you know, yeah. I mean, I, I really think I totally agree. You know, sometimes I'll go and see I'm a big art lover, so I'll go and see a you know, a play or a musical. And now knowing the Enneagram, you can tell how fully developed the characters are, right? <laughs> yeah. so, yep. so I'll be like, oh my gosh, that's a total, like total three that's average. You know, they're yep. still on autopilot. And then yep. maybe they start to have an awakening of their threeness or, you know, whatever number it is. And you're like, oh, yeah. well, that's a great storyline. They're, they're waking up to mm-hmm. who they truly are, which is mm-hmm. what we all love to see. Yeah. Elder Price in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> Yeah, one of the best, totally. one of the best three revelations totally. that happen on stage made me cry. <laughs> yes, that was such a great show. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you asked me about some of the questions that I asked. In yeah. my, so I started interviewing artists. Is basically where I started. So I started interviewing artists, all sorts of artists, because I didn't want to just do actors. Because if I was taking an abroad approach of how can I create use the Enneagram as a tool for leadership in the arts. Yeah. And we're going to be dealing with tech, you know, artists. We're going to be dealing with musicians and producers and stage managers and and all sorts of different designers, include, you know, along with actors. So I asked them how would they define a good leader, specifically when the within the arts and what are positive and negative behaviors of a leader. So I did some research on how are we defining leadership in the arts, number one. And then I asked them, what motivates you to do your best work in, especially within an artistic space? How can someone help motivate you? Which is, that was really interesting because there are some people like three, sevens and eights are very (laughs) self-motivated. Four, fives and nines really need some external motivation. And this is just stereotyping right here, just generalizing. It's not true for all of the artists that I interviewed, but... Yeah. So that was really interesting. I asked, what does vulnerability look like for you? Defining vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And have you ever been truly vulnerable in an artistic space? And then describe the leadership style and atmosphere of that space. I I had someone who was a four talk about, she had to do a show. It's called teaming, like this wailing, like a grieving, like loud wailing as part of the show. And it, and it was just her character that had to do it. Kins don't keen um, as, as a part of our grieving process. We're very quiet grievers. So even though she said, even though I was the only one who had to do it, she had the entire cast do it. And she had a cast member do some specific research on it. And so they turned out the lights they sat in a circle and one cast member started it. And as soon as we felt we were ready, we could just go. And so the whole group was just doing this exercise of just learning to wail in darkness, 
and just allowing that emotional exposure and that risk to take place. And she said it made her feel so much more comfortable because the leader took it seriously and took care to make sure that everyone felt cared for. And so then as they practiced that, then she, the actor who actually had to do it in the show, felt so much more confident to be able to do it on her own during the performance because she felt supported by her cast and supported by the leader. And so she was able to open up for the audience and and really show that, that character and that culture. So that was, that was a really striking story about what it looks like yeah to take a risk in a space like that oh that's a, i think that's a great example one of the examples as you were talking that comes to mind for me is when i work with high achievers and those people that are you know typically would be described as maybe a workaholic maybe a 3 or an 8 or a 7 on the enneagram you know whatever that looks like but they'll talk about how you know i work 60 hours a week but i do not expect that from my people And I say, well, how do you think that they're going to believe that you believe this is important? You have to model it for them. And no matter what you're leading, how you're leading, whether it's in the arts, doesn't matter. We have to model the behavior that we want others to to see and others to adopt. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important piece. So as a director that, you know, and and to say, you know what, I, I believe this is important. You can't not show something, but then tell everyone else that they need to be doing it. You know, I mean, it's just like, and, and I think we all know that conceptually, but I think in leadership, you absolutely have to be all in and you have to be able to model the behavior you're, you're wanting from your team. So yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. And a few other things that I asked, um, I asked them how they handled conflict with authority, peers, and subordinates. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked how they proceed to prefer to receive feedback, whether it's positive or negative. I asked what their average energy level is and what drains them and what recharges them. Yeah. And then I asked them to rank feeling, thinking, and doing in order of importance to them. And so I wasn't necessarily interested in their answer because you know, a lot of these folks hadn't been studying the Enneagram. I could always tell when somebody knew what their Enneagram type was and they could just say, you know, feeling, doing, thinking, you know, but I would ask them, okay, why? Tell me your thought process in, in why you rank them that way. And then that was the real money, like hearing them talk about why is feeling or thinking or doing first, second, or third to them. And in that process, asking them to reflect on that, I could usually at least pinpoint a triad, if not a stance, and what they go to in terms of their dominant center of intelligence. After asking them what they're motivated by, what makes them feel vulnerable, how can people create a safe space for them, what their energy level is like. I mean, I, and I was, and then I did have them at the last question, I showed them a chart of the Enneagram basic fears and desires. And I just asked them to pick three that stood out to them. And so just to see, because I know that we all have stress and security numbers, you know, we have wings. So I was interested to see if those correlated at all. And some of them did, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe an eight would pick eight, five and two. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) you know, but sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they would pick all the thinking 
triad numbers. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. So basically I had a lot of um, qualitative data and my goal was to just get an idea for what triad they were a part of. I was usually, there were only a couple that I wasn't able to figure out really what type they were. Everyone else, I was able to figure out and pinpoint what type they were. And then through that, you know, and it was probably like an hour to a 90 minute interview that we did me asking these really specific questions. I also asked them if they knew their Myers-Briggs type because I think that that plays into things. Like I interviewed a bunch of threes and I had ENFJs, ESFJs, (laughs) INTJs, and ENFPs. Those are very different threes. Like an ENFP type three is going to be much more spontaneous than an EN or an INTJ three. Like very different type threes. I wanted to just have that in mind. So when I was looking at, you know, how do you create structure? Like, you know, for threes, goal setting is really important, but they set goals in different ways. They're still setting goals because the underlying motivation is to be successful. But the way they go about that, the behavior is different. And that's where I think Enneagram tests don't lead us down the right path because yeah. their behavior mode, like their behavior yes. focused. And so if you have someone who is spontaneous and they like to leave plans to the last minute, that has nothing to do with their underlying motivation. You yeah. have to figure out why are they leaving plans to the last minute? Well, maybe they feel like they can do the most successful thing if they leave it to the last minute. And it's the same motivation as a, a, J3, who's very organized and structured, they have the same motivation. The behavior looks different. Yeah. So that yeah. that was also helpful for me. Not everyone knew their Myers-Briggs type, but that was a helpful added piece of data since I've been studying, studying Myers-Briggs for about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you described with the questions you asked is just a perfect typing session, right? You don't yeah. need a test to do that. And I right. am with you as well. People love tests for some reason. So... I will use the Enneagram Institute, the ready test for a lot of clients, but it's really honestly just to give me a starting point so I can mm-hmm. see those patterns. Like if they have three, six, nine right. on right. the top. Okay. Yeah. I can see, I can see that that's where that's a good starting point for us. And I can ask a handful of questions to get to at a minimum three or less types. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm with you too. I think some of the tests and some of the things that are um, out there can steer people in the wrong direction. So that's why I highly encourage people to have someone either certified in Enneagram or very well-versed in Enneagram that can make sure that you're not mistyped. I think, mm-hmm. I think it doesn't have the power that it has when you're mistyped. You know, I've shared with the listeners, I was mistyped as a three and I'm actually a nine. Yeah. And to your point earlier, when I looked at the weaknesses, it, it felt like a gut punch, right? It felt like, oh my gosh, someone, someone has somehow, they're onto me, you know, like someone, someone's figured me out and I'm awakening to this too, you know? Yeah. So it was like me awakening to some of that was a huge growth opportunity for me. Yeah. And that's what the Enneagram is all about. It's really about waking us up. It's right. not just about the type, you know, it's about this awakening and getting yourself off autopilot, discovering subconscious behaviors that you are just doing mm-hmm. and you don't even know you're doing it because you've created it in childhood and you've been doing it forever. So right. some of those behaviors and those things that are coming out aren't serving us anymore. We need to right. need to learn to grow through that. It shows you the box you're already living in. 
Right. And it says, you don't have to live in this box. You can if you want, but there are a lot of other ways to do life and you have a choice. Yeah. And so it, it shows you that you're no longer captive to the ego who's driving your car and you're just a passenger. Yeah. You have the ability to put the ego in the passenger seat and say, thank you so much for the alerts and, and trying to p- protect me because that's right. what the ego does. It protects us. It's our defense mechanism that shows us you know, how to get our needs met and things like that. But but it does do very predictable, habitual things, especially with the three centers of intelligence. Yeah. If we're only using two of those most of our life and we don't use a third one, yeah. we're living in an unbalanced that's why we get into those like cycles because we're living kind of an unbalanced life and the ego does not help us get us get into a balanced <laughs> life. It just keeps, yes. it's like this works. So we're going to keep doing what works, but it doesn't yeah. really work anymore. That's a great point too. You know, like we talk about the Enneagram is supposed to be all about tapping back into our essence, who mm-hmm. we are essentially. Mm-hmm. And personality is just the ego. So personality is ego. So that's what we've created. And, and you bring up great points about, you know, just the whole protective way that we, we, you know, do things for ourselves. And it's just how our brains work, but we can, we can create new neural pathways. We can grow through these things. Right, so that's, right. that's a beautiful, hopeful thing for all the listeners out there. So, yeah. Yeah. So can I share the second part of my research, which was using improv in the Enneagram? Yes, please do. (laughs) This is fascinating to me. I think we should bring more improv into the workplace in standard business settings. So yeah. I love improv. Improv was a whole journey for me back in 20... I think I signed up in 2015. The Improv Shop here in St. Louis is a school run by my friend Kevin McKernan and Andy Slowey. And they are Second City trained improv artists and um, they have a whole group of amazing teachers. And they have two stages and like Thursday, Friday, Saturday night shows. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. And they actually just started a new branch in Kansas City. So anyway, they have a school and I went... I went through their improv training center, which is about 14 months of classes. And it was really freeing for me as a people pleaser to go through because the basis, the basic theory of improv is you say yes, and everyone else says yes to you. And so it creates a very supportive environment. And also the goal of improv is not to make yourself look good. It's to support your team. It's actually very six very six centered. I wonder if a lot of six is like improv. So what was really helpful is if I say something, I'm doing, I have to say something and I want to set up my partner on stage for the the laugh. I want to set them up for the, the, to look good. I want to give them as much information as possible so that they're able to shine, but then they're trying to do the same thing for me. So the focus is completely off you and it's completely on the other person. And no matter what you say, the other person is going to support you. So as a two, someone who's very people pleasing and always trying to gauge like what people want me to say or do, I just could let that go. And my filter just left. Like I was able to take off my filter and say whatever the heck I wanted. And they would be like, yeah, and this, you know? So the first, the first ever improv conversation I had was with a friend who she became one of my good friends, Mary Rose. She's an incredible improv artist. And we had our first conversation and I said something like, I'm really glad you're coming to Thanksgiving this year. And she was like, yes, this is the year you're going to come out to mom, isn't it? And I was like, 
Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad that my, my girlfriend Patrice can come, but I'm not sure if our brother's going to like her. And she's like, yeah, you know, Larry, he doesn't like Patrice very much, you know? And so like instantly oh, we were great. in this really interesting conversation about coming out to mom at Thanksgiving. Like, yeah. And, and it was so supportive. And like, she gave me so much great information and I was able to just be like, yes, and just go with it. And then she would affirm and say anything that I said. So what I did taking the Enneagram and improv is I realized that the theory of improv is that you have everything you need to create a good show and a good scene on stage. You have all the tools with you. You are enough. So I created a class for improv students called You Are Enough. And it was basically taking... Because sometimes we'll get suggestions from the audience or you can infuse your scenes with motivation. So I started having improv actors take like a motivation from a hat and I had an Enneagram motivations in there. And I'm like, okay, do the scene. The only thing that you have to add in is that you're motivated by this thing. And I wanted to see like how that, that influenced the scene. So I, I played around with character development there, but the main thing is that you are enough. Like you have all the tools that you need to do an interesting scene on stage, just you and the room and the stage and your partner and the chair in the back, like whatever's in the room that you have enough. And I realized that I have so many actor friends, not necessarily in improv, but especially in auditioning, they feel very insecure going into an audition room because they're trying to please the director. They're trying to land the gig. They're trying to book the show and they don't feel like they're enough. They're constantly trying to put on other characters to be somebody else in order to be successful, in order to be wanted. And so I found that in coaching actors one-on-one, because I did some audition coaching, I would get really into, okay, what's, what's your actual fear here? You know, and, and how can we, how can we build your confidence? Again, we're building confidence. How can we build your confidence so that that fear doesn't take the driver's seat when you're in the audition room? Because the director and the casting team, they need to see you at your best self. And you are the only person who can be your best self. And no one else can be your your mashup of your Myers-Briggs, your Enneagram type, like your essence, like all these things. You are so unique, just how you are put together. And in the audition room, that's what the director needs to see. They need to see that they have a wealth of of talent to work with that they can mold into any character. And so I started using the Enneagram to build up actors' confidences in one-on-one acting coaching sessions. And I started doing a lot of improv exercises because you get people's gut reactions, you get people's gut instincts. And especially, so then I developed a workshop where I taught actors and leaders the Enneagram for five weeks. So we we just did like a book study of Suzanne Stabile and Ian Kron's Road Back to You. We just went through five weeks of that book. So they really had the vocabulary and we practiced self-observation and reflecting and things like that. We also worked in little exercises like for the doing dominant week when we talked about the gut triad, we did yoga, we did some other improv, um, small team building exercises where they're doing something, they can't talk about it, they just have to go and do. And then we would reflect and be like, how was that exercise for you? What did you think? Like, did you love it? Did you hate it? Why? What was your thought process? And I'm just like taking notes the entire time, like this yeah. like behavioral therapist, you know, just yes. like, even though I'm not a therapist, but just yeah. taking all these notes. And then same thing with like the head triad, we did a bunch of like, 
it's like logic or, you know, brainstorming, like thinking pattern type of ex- exercises. And then with the feeling we did, like sharing your feelings. Can you, can you read a scene and pick up on the feelings that are, are on the paper? Like what feelings are you interpreting? Because the feeling center is not just your own emotions, but it's also reading the room and picking up on emotions right. from other people. Right. So we, we worked through, you know, what is the feeling? What is the thinking? What is it doing? <laughs> and yeah. worked through all that. And then we did three weeks of just plain improv. And so I taught them the basics of improv. They didn't already know how to say yes, how to add to the scene, how to just do a, a very basic two-person improv scene. And then I would get feedback and after the improv scenes, and I would give them different ways to different flavors to add in the scenes when they got the basic down and we would do warm up exercises. And so after, after we do warm ups, after we do improv, we had about 45 minutes of just giving me feedback. And I'd be like, okay, this exercise, did you like it? Did you hate it? Why? Like, and I fully prepped them. You're going to hate some of this stuff. It's going to make you very uncomfortable. You're going to love some of the other stuff. Like you're just, it's going to be your jam. I am not interested if you're good at this. I'm just interested in what it makes you feel and think and do. And so that way I can start building a collection of exercises that gives me feedback on each Enneagram type. Because if I'm a director and I want to help my my actor friend who's stuttering before his dress rehearsal, I want to give him some physical exercises or some intellectual exercises or some emotional exercises that can help build his confidence. Or if I'm in a rehearsal like place where we don't have a production at stake, I want to be able to challenge some of my actors who maybe haven't taken a risk in a while. And I want to do something that's going to make them a little uncomfortable just by taking a risk and maybe they're not great at expressing their feelings or maybe they're not great at, you know, just jumping off the stage and doing the splits, like, you know, but how can I challenge them to take the next step into being spontaneous and discovering the next thing about that character? And so I want to have a a book of exercises that I could say, here's literal feedback from all the Enneagram types on what their reaction was to this exercise. And so I started building that through, through this workshop. And it's still in the very beginning stages. I need to host more of these workshops because I didn't get quite enough data. And I just kind of, my goal is to be the host of these types of workshops over and over and over again so that I can just get a ton of data yeah. and then start building a book for directors to use while working for their actors. And, and I really do feel like the director works for their actors. They're there to make sure the actors shine. So that's how I use the Enneagram. That's how I use improv. It's really interesting with improv. It's one thing to learn the Enneagram in your head, but it's another thing to see it play out on the floor and to be bumping elbows with people who are learning the Enneagram too. And like you're like, there's this one really simple game that I always do. It's how can you build the tallest cup tower in 90 seconds? And I divide them into teams. And I say, okay, you can't talk about your strategy beforehand. You have to just go. And then they just start building this cup tower and they're like in the zone. They're all on autopilot in this moment. You know, they're yeah. just like, the goal is to build the tower as fast as we can. It has to be the tallest, can't, you know, whatever. So then after the 90 seconds, I'm like, okay, it doesn't really matter who won, but I want to know what were you thinking? <laughs> And some people like the threes and eights are like, 
oh, I wanted to win. Like they're so pissed that they didn't win or they're so like triumphant that they won. The twos are like, I was just making sure that everyone is okay. Like hurt them. Like did everybody have a role? Did people feel included? Like the nines are like, I was just going with the flow. Like the fours and fires are like, we're just going to step back in and hang out back here. You guys go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Like people, some people were really insecure about their ideas. They didn't want to share their ideas because they didn't want other people to reject their ideas. Other people were like, no, we just have to do it. Yeah. And, and it's just this, it's a 90 second exercise that when we are discussing it, we do a debrief and they are amazed that everyone who just experienced the same 90 seconds had a different take on that 90 seconds. Yeah. And that shows that everybody has a different lens and a different perspective. And it gives you insight. It gives you compassion. Suzanne Seville always talks about the Enneagram gives you compassion for the way people see the world. Yeah. And so I love using improv when learning the Enneagram because it gives you a tangible way to see how people are interacting with each other. All the ways you're you're using the Enneagram in the arts are so applicable to all areas. So I just love that. And I love that exercise with the cups. So leaders out there, I don't care <laughs> what industry you're in, you can you can learn a lot from your team by seeing how they show up in that 90 second exercise. And there's all sorts of different ways to do that. But I think that's really important for leaders to understand that. And those people that are, you know, stepping back and kind of just letting others take over, maybe, maybe you need to ask them their opinion and ask, ask them directly to share. And maybe it's in private, you know, maybe it's not in a large group setting, but how do we get the best out of our people, which is exactly what you're doing. So you're working to get the best out of your actors, the best out of improv, which I just love. I think we all need more laughter and <laughs> and the ability to sort of just learn to go with the flow, right? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're doing amazing work. Keep it up. I want my listeners to know how they can find you. So what's the best way to connect with you if they are interested in talking to you more or maybe hosting one of these workshops? Yeah, yeah. So you can go to my website. It's www.notjustenniacoach.com. Um, so that's not just E N N E A coach. <laughs> because... I will put that in the show notes as well. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I do coaching, I do acting coaching, I do improv coaching. Like you have an improv team and you're interested in having a coach for your improv team. But I also do corporate workshops. I do, you know, one-on-one Enneagram coaching, or I host, you know, if you want me to lead a book study of The Road Back to You, I mean, that's a really great five to six week session workshop that is really great. Goes through all the the book chapters in that book. I'm like happy to host that and, and supplement with activities throughout the session. So that's why it's not just any a coach because I don't just coach any of Graham. Right. <laughs> but Same. yeah, that would yeah. be the best way to contact me. You can also look me up on LinkedIn, Elizabeth Worm, on LinkedIn, and, and definitely through the notes in, in Rachel's podcast notes. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. I love the way you're using this. Keep it up. And I'm sure we will continue talking. Yeah. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Thanks. Hey, hey, thanks for joining me as we jam on the gram. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get the latest weekly episodes. That's right. I said weekly. And if you want to follow me on LinkedIn and also on Instagram at Indie Enneagram, I would love to have you. And just remember, when it comes to personal growth, there are seven days in the week and someday isn't one of them. Have a great week.